You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Whoever you are out there in the wide world, thank you so much for tuning in. This week I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Henry Gillespie. Now, for those of you that don't know who Henry Gillespie is, um, which will be quite a few I would imagine because uh, Henry really flies under the radar. Now, if you are steeped in the art world, and, and know a thing or two about art, which I don't profess to being one of those people, um, then then you will know who Henry is. But for those of you that don't, I suppose, um, you know, I mean, there's a, a, there is many, many aspects of Henry's life, but the one that you can really sort of, you know, hang your hat on there is that Henry has had his portrait painted by Andy Warhol. Now, that's no small feat. And he's one of two people in Australia to have had that experience. And he is one of the two people that Andy offered. He didn't commission Andy. um, And and that's an honor. So um, I had the good fortune of speaking with Henry and, and, and Henry led me on that journey to, to, um, to that point in time, which is, 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 a, is an amazing story. So um, I hope you enjoy my chat with Henry. Now, when I got to the end of the chat with Henry, which I thoroughly enjoyed, um, he tells me, like, as soon as I press stop, he goes, well, I'll save the next part for next time. And I'm not going to divulge anything else, but the next part was, I, I, I had no idea. I, I just didn't know that there was this other st- big story in Henry. Uh, and there, I'm just going to leave that one like a cliffhanger. There you go. Um, I really wanted to put this podcast out yesterday, but I was just feeling flat. You know, I, 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 um, I, I got back and I didn't even surf. I just, you know, those days when you're just off and I was, had to wait for my natural energy to come back. And this morning when I woke up, it was going to go one or two ways. I don't know why I'm rabbiting on about this, but I um, like today I'm going to be sick or my energy will be back. And it seems to be back, which I'm thrilled about. Um yeah, so what else is going on? Um, I tell you this, I tell you this, I'll keep you in tune, um, whether you like it or not. Uh, I got pulled over the other day, and I drive an old diesel, and I got pulled over because I overtook a policeman who was going slowly. Now, he was going slowly. I know that sounds really weird, but he was going slow, and I know what 100 is in my car, and... When the cop pulled me over, he told me I was doing 109. Now, that is a, that's a lie. That was a flat-out lie. I was not doing 109. If, if my speedo was 100 and it was 109, it was 9 k's out, I would have speeding fines up the wazoo. You know, they, they will fine you for going X amount, you know, nothing over the limit. And so when he said, you're doing 109, I was like, no, I wasn't. Um... I know I was doing 103 tops. And um, so anyway, um, I'm going to take this one to court. And um, isn't that fun? (laughs) 
just out of principle because I, I, uh, the situation was is he was holding up traffic because he's doing under the limit. And I, I sort of snuck past and, um, and he made an example of me. And I know when I asked to see the radar, you know, show me, show me the proof that I was doing 109. I asked him three times. He, he said, no, he said, I can't show you. And so I know he was lying. So I'm going to contest it. Ah, maybe I, maybe I'll end up wishing I, I didn't just suck it up. They say, just suck it up. But no, I am standing up because I feel like we are being leaned on. Uh, anyway, um, you were probably all out there saying, dude, suck it up, pay the fine and move on. Um, but, you know, we can't... Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to do it for fun. Anyway, I hope you're well out there in the world. I hope you enjoy my chat with Henry Gillespie and um, I will see you on the other side. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it all sounds like the dark ages now. But it wasn't all that long ago. It was, you know, it was in the 50s. I was born in 1953. And um, I grew up here as a young, as a child. And I went to the local school and the high school. And, uh, but in 1969, I was chosen to be an exchange student. And I went off to, the, off to America. I sailed to America by ship. Sailed? Yeah, took two weeks. And it was it was it was it was lovely, you know, the experience of being on an old-fashioned ocean line, not like these these ones today, which are just um, just like um, egg crates. And I went to Seattle on the west coast, right up to Seattle, which is a lovely part of the U.S. and and and, and not as um, not as f- frenetic or crowded, or it's more refined sort of area of the U.S. Very pretty countryside, and get, get a huge amount of rain. And uh, I, I loved America, you know, as a, as a, in that sense, and they're all very friendly to me. And but I love the cars, the big cars, the Cadillacs with the fins, and and the um, and the Lincoln Continentals. My host family had a Lincoln with the suicide doors, and I just thought it was fabulous. And of course, there's so many electricals with them. And coming out of Dinelequin in, in you know in the '60s, there was, there was nothing equivalent. And, it was like going forward in time. It was like suddenly sort of being in a time machine and going forward. And they were all very nice to me, and I, you know, and I, and I liked it. I really liked the American way of life, and I was impressed by um, their patriotism. They're very pat- patriotic, and every day before school began, they put their hands on their heart and express allegiance to the, the flag and their country. They're very, very proud people. But also, in July of that year, 1969, they put a man on the moon, and we, and we watched it on this old-fashioned black-and-white TV. But the pride in, in the achievement and fulfilling Kennedy's um, uh, 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 wish was just, was just was, was magical, you know, just magical. And they felt like they could do anything because putting a man on the moon was doing almost the impossible. So had Kennedy passed by that stage? Oh, yeah. 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 Nixon was on the thro- on the, in the presidency. And, of course, then all that unravelled, and that was very awkward for them because they, they felt very divided about it. 
and, and, and it, was, it was a very hard time. You know, they, they really tear people apart in the US, but of course everybody does it. I mean, it's not just the US. But, um, and then I came back via... Were you, sorry to cut you off, but were you impressed with the, um, the thing that I noticed was the positivity of people? Oh, yes. They're so, they're so positive and so full of energy and... They they treat you as they find you. Not they don't. They're not interested in where you come from. They want to. They they take you as as a person, and that's that's something really refreshing because, you know, it's what what counts. It's how it should be, and I love that because you know in in Australia they say oh you're the son of so and so or this or that or, you know it's all sort of where'd you go to well, school yeah, yeah yeah all of that and. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's rather crippling, all that. You know, it's baggage. They, they put baggage on your back, whereas in, in the US they don't. They, 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 they say, that's wonderful. But New York is, is where it's, you can really be anything. <laughs> and that's what I really loved about New York. And I met many New Yorkers who had invented themselves in New York in that way. Uh, the best example is Andy Warhol. So before we jump to Andy, can I just get you to come? You so you came back after that trip. Well, I came back and it was very, I, I felt very flat coming back to yeah. Australia, and it was very hard. But I realised that I'd, I'd had a wonderful experience and that I was lucky to have it, and to get on with my schooling and go to university, and that I'd be able to go back. So you became a lawyer. You went to school for lawyer. Yeah, I went be- to Melbourne University, did an arts law degree. Which was uh, that a good time? Uh, not really, not really. I, I didn't like the law because it was all about people's problems, you know, solving people's problems. But then I looked at it, well, it's a wonderful discipline to work out, you know, the way to think, think and, and think, think on a different, different level. So that was good, but uh, I didn't really like it. Mm. Then I did articles and then I worked and it, I just didn't like it. But then I, um, and I went back to the US a couple of times and I liked it when I say the US to New York and, and New York as you would know is not America it's like a little island all itself it's like and, 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 it, and even just chunks of New York are, are quite distinct you know the Upper East Side and the Lower East Side and, and, and they don't sort of mingle much they have neighbourhoods <laughs> which is which is wonderful but the but the energy and the creativity, especially in the arts. I mean, the, the, the visual and the performing arts is just sensational because they've had such patronage from wealthy collectors and donors and the museums and the collections are just breathtaking. It's, it's so overwhelming. I remember when I first arrived and I was, I don't know how long I'd been there, maybe two months, and all of a sudden I went and I felt like I took my first breath. Mm. And I went, oh, I'm sort of, I can see things now. What have I been doing for two months? Just running on adrenaline. Yeah. Like I felt like I've been picked off and then just dropped into, you know, something like, uh, you know, Disneyland. I don't know. Like Mm. your eyes are out on sticks. Well, I felt that I was at the top of the world. Mm. And I said that to a friend of mine and he said, Henry, you are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, well, yes, I am, you know, but, but it sounds very conceited and a bit arrogant, but, you know, but, uh, but New York, especially in, in the 80s and the 90s, was just, because there was such money, there was huge money and, uh, and they hadn't had 9-11 and, they, you know, and China wasn't the, the same as it is now and, and they, were really, they were really just humming along. 
and, uh, and, and loving life. I love their energy and the way they love life and celebrate. They really celebrate, you know, Thanksgiving and Halloween yeah. and the parties and, you know, they, 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 they enjoy life. They get out there and enjoy it. But they work hard. They're very hard workers. Uh, and, and the music scene back then would have been amazing in New York. Wonderful music. And the food was good. And, uh, no, it, 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 they, they excel. They like to be as good as they can be. And uh, it's just wonderful. There's a term, besting, which I'd never heard before until I got over there. And I was like, yeah, I had to have that explained to me. But so then, uh, and that is, you know, to get to the top. And so you came back and forth a couple of times after you finished yeah. and got your law degree. And when was it? What happened for that trajectory when? Well, it, really, it all changed when I had a lucky encounter in 1983 with this uh, wonderful American woman called Marietta Tree, who by, by birth was a Endicott Peabody from Boston, very old Brahmin families. And her grandfather had founded Groton School in Massachusetts and educated Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And she was way ahead of her time because she's on all these corporate boards. She's a director of Pan American Airways, CBS, the television station, and, uh, and several other US trusts. And, uh, and, and, and she's on the board of Lendlease in Australia. Dick Dusseldorf, the founder of Lendlease, put her on the board. So she'd come to Australia twice a year for board meetings and she'd fly on Pan American Airways, which she's a director of. So it, she, it, it, it didn't happen by accident, I'm sure, but it was all beautifully arranged. And she had a very famous daughter in Sydney called Penelope Tree who was uh, a model for David Bailey and lived with David Bailey for a long time. But Marietta knew everybody uh, uh, and was very much admired and respected and had great parties. And, and, uh, and she loved New York and she'd done a lot to enhance it with putting the, getting the lights strung on the 57th Street Bridge. She got Robert Moses, the city planner, to, to do that. And, and whenever I go there and see those lights, I think of her. And... Uh, but she was also president of the neighbourhood committees and, 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 and hospitals for the disadvantaged. I mean, she wasn't a, a total blue stocking. She liked doing both. But she wasn't ashamed to have a good party and invite them all. And it was just, it was just sensational. But she was very proud of it all and, and liked showing it off to me because she, she knew I was curious. And, and she, could, you know, she could open my eyes and, and did it. And, and, and uh, it was just, you know, magical. Just magical. They'd, they'd all be there at her drinks parties or her dinner parties, and I am Pay, the architect, and Jacqueline Kennedy, and Brooke Astor, and it just went on and on, you know. And they're all there, and they're, and they're nice because you're 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 a fellow guest, and so, so of course they're nice to you. Could you could you believe coming from you know Deniliquin to this new world? No, I couldn't believe it. I had to pinch myself, and I, I, I could hardly sleep at night because I thought I was like Alice in Wonderland. I really did. You know, I thought, is this real? But, um, but it was, and, and, and of course I, I told myself that these are just ordinary people too, but they're living in a remarkable way, and you just treat them as ordinary people. Um, but one of the tricks I learned at dinner parties was to ask people what they collected, because every American collects something, whether it be matchboxes or uh, works of art or crystal or something or other, you know, they, and, and they love talking about it. So it was a wonderful way to, to, um, to have a conversation. 
And then often they'd say, would you like to come and see it? Well, of course, you know, and they'd live in wonderful townhouses or apartments and, and you know, and it just went on. And so how long were you there to... Um this at this stage, were you over there looking for a career, or were you thinking? No, well, I, I liked Australia, and getting a green card would have been difficult because I did think of moving there, and I was offered a position in in the social events department at the Metropolitan Museum, which would have been wonderful. But the, the, the green card is very hard to get, and it just it just um, wasn't possible. So I, I I just continued doing what I did. But also, I, I like Australia. I mean, I, I, I didn't feel that I wanted to leave Australia. I just liked having, having both. <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love my Australian life, and it's, it's fun to have part of your life. You know, you've got your familiar, familiarities over there as well, and you always feel like you can go back, and it feels bits of it feel like home. Yes. Well, they became friends, many of them, and I'd see them, and that was nice. And... And probably the dynamics, if I lived there, would have been quite different because when you're around all the time, it, it's not the same. But when you're just just sort of coming in for ten days or two weeks, they they love it, and uh, and so and they you know they 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 take me to things. One one, one evening we went to um, a function at the New York Public Library to celebrate the Statue of Liberty's anniversary or bicentenary or something. And, uh, and we went in a taxi and we arrived at the steps and halfway up the steps was Brooke Astor and Maria said, quick, 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 there's Brooke. So we went up the stairs and caught up with her and she, she was nice and charming. That, that's the first time I met her. And, uh, and then uh, towards the end of the evening she said, would, would you like a lift home to, to Marietta and me? And we said, oh, yes, of course. And we go down through the back because th- those people were allowed to, to use the back door and it was much easier. They, their car could be right at the door. So we went down and, and the car was there and, and uh, dropped Marriott off first at one Sutton Place South. And then she took me to where I was staying at the Union Club. And as I was going, she said, she said, when you're coming back, send me a postcard, she said. That was her way of saying to keep in touch. And so I did. And six months later, or whenever it was, I sent, the, sent a little note. And then when I arrived, there was a message to call Mrs Astor's secretary. Oh, yes, Mrs Gillespie, thank you for calling. And uh, Mrs Astor would like you to come to dinner tonight for the Countess of Avon. And I didn't even know who the Countess of Avon was, but that didn't matter. But I quickly found out it was Clarissa Churchill, Anthony Eden's widow. And, and, and also at the dinner, it was sort of like a Churchill dinner because uh, young Winston was there. And also Pamela Harriman, who was, who'd formerly been married to Randolph Churchill and, and was young Winston's mother, so the, they were there. And it was a big uh, a big dinner, but beautifully done. And they were all there and it was lovely. So that, that you know, it was like serendipity, you know, just sort of send me a postcard and that's what happened. But she became a great friend because she's very generous and she liked people and she liked people who liked her and who were curious. And uh, she'd always ask me to things and and uh, take me out. And then um, uh, another time I went up to Maine to stay with John Bullard, who, who, who then was the director of the, the New Orleans Museum of Fine Art, because I'd ventured south. People said, you know, you, you can't just go to New York. You'll have to 
venture out and New Orleans is a wonderful place. So I went down and he was my host. I stayed in his guest house and he took me around all the big collectors, you know, they're fascinating people. But then he also had a summer house up in Maine because um, New Orleans in, in the summer is just unbearable. They all leave. And and, and so I was, uh, went to Maine and um, I had a message to ring Brooke Astor's secretary and... Uh, and Brooke Astor came on the phone and she said, oh, how long are you here for? And she said, would you like to come for lunch next week? And, and you can bring your host. And I said, yes, that'd be very nice. And, what, you know, it was all sort of arranged. And John Bullard was thrilled, you know, just thrilled to be going to Mrs Astor's. And we weren't, he wasn't sure whether we should wear a tie and a jacket because, you know, they're fairly casual up there. And so he said, well, put it in the car and we'll wait outside the front gate and for the other guests and just see. And a couple of cars with by and they're all done up with their jackets and ties. And he said, quick, quick, quick. So <laughs> we, we got all dressed up. And then it was a, it was a lovely um, lunch and she has a, had a beautiful garden up at Cove End. Absolutely magnificent with all all the different flowers, the colours sort of changing with the with the rows of flowers. I'm and, getting visuals of Gatsby. Well, not quite, but close. Mm. You're getting close. But 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 these people had their feet on the ground. But but they were living very well, but not not extravagantly. You know that that would have been against their against their spirit. And then this very nice sort of older man came in and held his hand out, said David Rockefeller. And it was David, who, who was a friend of books and, and had a house nearby that used to be his mother's, and he kept his mother's garden. And, and a very nice, quiet man. You'd never pick him. And he said, said, oh, you know, I'd like you to come and see my mother's garden. But we didn't get across there. But, but John Bullard, who, who was born and raised in America, it was, it was the highlight of his life, you know, because these people that he'd only ever heard about and his museum had borrowed works from um, from David Rockefeller for exhibitions and things, and he was able to thank him. But then he was when he was going, he said, um, "When you come back to New York, let me know, as I'd love to see you." And I thought, oh, "Aren't they kind?" They're, 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 he's just saying that because I'd heard it heard in Australia how people couldn't get to see him. People like Gordon Darling and James Mollison from the National Gallery how they tried for two years to see him and they couldn't get in the bond. And so I thought, well, you know, that's the way it is. But then when I did go back, I rang up and spoke to his uh, secretary, Alice Victor, and she said, oh, uh, yes, Mr Rock Rockefeller, we'd love to see you. Would you like Tuesday at 3 o'clock or, or Thursday at 10 o'clock? You gave me choices. And I thought, goodness. <laughs> and then I went to the Rockefeller Centre and they have the whole whole floor, 65th floor, that they call it room 5600. It's very sort of modest, you know, they're very low-key. And I went, went to the desk and I said to the man, I said, uh, I'm Henry Gillespie and I'm here to see David Rockefeller. And he, he looked up at me as if to say, oh, yes, yes, yeah, you know. And then he looked down the list, oh, yes, yes, you know. And then the gates open and up you go. And again, it was a wonderful experience because he had beautiful offices with with wonderful works of art that were just hanging with old with old masters that, that have now gone to the Museum of Modern Art, which his mother was one of the co-founders of. And um, and and he, he was charming. He wanted to know what I was seeing and what I was doing, and genuinely interested in me. And uh, he'd been to Australia a couple of times. He had a property in Esperance in Western Australia. In Esperance. Yeah, the Rockefellers like like unusual sort of places and things because, you know, they, they've done all the mainstream things there. But it all came to sort of a sad end because Benno Smith, who was a partner, 
his son was rounding up cattle or sheep and on, on a motorbike and, and there was a car coming towards him. And ra- rather than s- swerve away, he swerved into it because he got confused by the different sides of the road oh. and was killed. So it was, that came to a sort of sad end. Oh, no. Yes. In Esperance. Yeah. So, so but, you know, he, he had such manners and when when it was time to go that he had a very he, he had a pained expression on his face and the secretary came in and said oh mr rockefeller your nephew's on the phone and, and i think you'd better take the call and said oh dear he said I, I i'm so enjoying talking to you and i don't want to go but he said i have to and then he took me to the lift he made the nephew wait on the phone he took me right to the lift and pushed the button he said well let me know when you come back you know and meant it meant it you know they 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 have manners so that, they're some of the sort of more unusual experiences, but but they're wonderful, just wonderful. You know these titans of American business and society who are who are really just very nice people, but they can't be like that with everybody. <laughs> no, no. But like you've said a few things, you've used the words serendipitous, which are completely, you know, uh, that word resonates for me with my experience in New York and. You know, I, I certainly didn't. I, met, I just met some amazing people there as well that I just couldn't believe when I met them. Just how feet on the ground, nice people they were. And in, for some reason, in your imagination, things are always different to, you know, when you really meet someone. And I keep thinking as you, um, in this period when there was no phones except for the phones in rooms connecting buildings, how much more that leans towards people being earnest and present and with the people they're with. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure it's different. It is different today, but but it's because the means of communication have changed. And, and, you know, it's now instant. (laughs) And and people are much busier and and, and don't sort of take the time. I mean, Bookraster's driver used to deliver notes, you you know, confirming that you're coming to lunch and things like that. Well, that's that's all gone by the way. Yeah. And, um, and so then did you return home again? Yes, I was, I was sort of backwards and forwards. Yeah. And, and I, I quite liked the, the, the change. You know, I was ready for the change. And it was, it was so exhilarating, you know, to, to be doing all that. And I, and I, and I sort of uh, I got to know them and realised sort of, you know, that. But, but always important to treat them like normal people. You know, you can't be sort of stage struck with them because they, they, it's a put off. Yeah. Yeah. But I found that that was particularly the case with Andy Warhol because he'd, he'd get mobbed, you know, and it was mad and he, he, he'd cringe, he'd cringe, you know, and, the, and you'd have to sort of fend people off. So can I ask, how, how did you encounter and meet Andy and how did that all come about? Well, that was serendipity again. But I'd always admired Andy's work and thought that he was a very important artist and was really onto something important with his pop culture. And, and his photography and his films and I, you know, because he wasn't well regarded. He was he was dismissed by a lot of people as being, being um, um, sort of evil and, and and no good, you know, and just a, just a, a commercial artist. But I, I didn't believe that for a second. And uh, and I was fortunate enough to be invited to the uh, Portraits of the Seventies exhibition opening at the Whitney Museum of American Art in November of 1979. 
and, and, and I'd met the director, Tom Armstrong, through Anne Lewis, who was a great Australian art patron, and she, she spent a lot of time in New York. She had a, an apartment, a loft in the village. And so I knew him, and I was just talking to him and saying what a great exhibition was. And Tom Armstrong was a great, great supporter of Warhol. You know, really thought that Warhol was very important, and he said that in the catalogue. But anyway, he said, would you like to meet Andy? It was just over there. I said, oh, yes, I'd love to. So I took him across, and Tom said, oh, this is Henry Gillespie, who's from Australia. He said, oh, Australia. He said, Australia. He said, doesn't it take 30 days to fly there? And I laughed and I said, Andy, that would get you on the moon. And he laughed and he thought that was funny. And then uh, it just sort of progressed and I admired his work and, 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 and he invited me down to the factory to see the factory. And so that was, that was sort of the beginning. But he wanted to come to Australia. He was fascinated because he'd been everywhere else and he'd seen photos of uh, the, 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 the vast expanse of countryside. He couldn't believe how big Australia was and how flat and how and unpopulated, you know, this vast land, you just couldn't comprehend it. But also the, the beaches and the lifesavers and I was somewhat sort of um, frightened by shark attacks, which seemed to get a lot of publicity. But um, he said, oh, I'd love to go there sometime. And, and I said, oh, well, that can be arranged, you know, that's be arranged. But he also, he just painted the portrait of Lottie Smorgan, so he knew a bit about Australia from talking to them. And so um, it sort of developed, and I went down to the factory and I had lunch. And, and, and Sorry to cut you off, but how was that experience being in, in the factory? Was it... Well, it was surreal. It was surreal because uh, I felt that I was in the company of a great artist, which he was, and... Uh, and to be right there just with him and some of the assistants and, and surrounded by all these works, these pop masterpieces, you know, just everywhere. It was just um, just overwhelming almost, but you couldn't be overwhelmed because you just you had just had to be a regular person. But he had a sense of humour, so one, you know, he'd make sort of cracks and he'd, you know, and he'd chuckle and laugh and, <laughs> and it was good. And he knew that... I knew Marietta Tree, and he was a great admirer of hers because when she'd been John Kennedy's ambassador to the UN, she got a lot of publicity. And he, he loved all those sort of um, important women. He thought, he thought they were great. You know, he said that. He said, you know, oh, she's, she's, she's great. She's a wonderful person. And, and so all those sort of things worked, sort of came, coalesced. And, uh, and then it just developed that he wanted to come to Australia and we worked out that... The best time would have been 1988 for the bicentennial, bicentennial. and um, because he, he died of a medical misadventure, ne negligence, in 1987. You know, for, he had a routine gallstone operation, and and the hospital hadn't 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 looked after the, his charts and things, and they didn't realise he was um, allergic to some of the some of the drugs and he's injected with one of these drugs that he's allergic to and it was a cardiac arrest but I saw him a few um, weeks before in fact we had lunch with um, with uh, Victor and Lottie Smorgan who were in Melbourne and Lynn Williams and Australian artist Fraser Fair and before that we, we went to Marietta Tree's apartment for drinks, uh, for iced tea and uh 
and Annie loved it, but I was a bit worried that he, he mightn't turn up because I, I wasn't sure of how reliable he was. You know, he might have had a better offer or something. But uh, uh, but, but I'd almost trapped on, stepped on a toe because um, uh, there was a subplot to it all. And uh, sometime previously, so Andy Warhol had been invited to have dinner with Jacqueline Kennedy, Anassas, and and he was very naughty, but he liked to he liked to sort of play with people a bit, and, he, and that's and he was naughty in it. But Jacqueline Kennedy wasn't up to it, and uh, he arrived very late. Th- that alone would have been enough for her to be annoyed, but with a handsome young man. And she took it sort of personally that he was like it was an insult, which in a way it was. And uh, and she sort of pushed him against the wall and pinned him, you know, there and said, you know, how dare you do this? And you know, you know, you shouldn't, you know, and sort of told him off. And Andy thought that was that was funny, you know, and laughed about that. And he thought that would be the end of it. But Jacqueline Kennedy wasn't um, wasn't going to take it. At all. So the next morning, and, and those great ladies, the ladies at lunch, they get on the phone at eight or eight thirty to all their pals, and uh, she got on the phone to quite a few of her pals and said, and told told the told the friends what had happened and said, oh, you know, Andy Wilde's so tacky, we can't have him in our homes anymore. So all the doors went closed, bang, bang, bang. But that was sort of like uh, potential portrait commissions sort of being lost, but. Marietta Tree was one of the ones who'd received one of these phone calls. So, uh, you know, she told Jacqueline Kennedy that Warhol wouldn't be coming to her apartment. And we'd, she'd take me to a dinner for Lady Bird Johnson. I mean, this is how New York was at that time. And, and so I chose my time to ask her. But I didn't... I, I, I sort of couched it in a way like I was telling her that... You know, but I was very diplomatic because I knew it could be an issue because... A lot of people didn't like Andy Warhol, and he was, he was, you know, he, and so I said, oh. Sorry, that, can I just interject? Um, they didn't like him on the basis of because he would, like, his um, beliefs or because he was late or, you know, what sort of... Well, all those things, but, but really they didn't like him because of the films he'd made and, and a lot of, and, and Edie Sedgwick committing suicide and, you know, they sort of, um, they thought he was... Uh, a bad influence on people and destructive, but but uh, which 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 could be placed. You know, you could make that. You could make that. But that was before he was shot, and he's since cleaned up his all his act and stopped making films. So sorry, who, uh, why was he shot? I, uh... By this kook, this nutter called Valerie Solanas in 1968, and she thought that he was trying to steal her script. Over a script. She sent him a script and she didn't hear anything. And she thought, that, you know, neurotically, um, that he, he, he was going to perhaps use it as his own. So she became... She, and she'd founded this, this group called SCUM, the Society for Cutting Up Men. Yeah, she was a radical, really radical, radical... Well, she was a nutter. She was a nutter, to be quite honest. Anyway, so she decided to kill Andy Warhol. And uh, and she waited a, a time, and uh, and she had a gun, and she uh, she burst into the studio, the factory, and she and she aimed, and you know she's flailing around, and anyway she shot Andy, and then Andy's um, manager Fred Hughes calmly said, 
get out, get out, get out, you know, and, and she, she did, she got out, but Andy, Andy was shot and he was, he was dying. But they, they quickly got an ambulance and got him to a hospital, but he was on a trolley, a, a gurney in the corridor, and he was just lying there and they're going to, nothing was going to happen. And then somebody said, that's a famous artist there, uh, lying on that trolley and he's very wealthy. So all of a sudden they all started working on him. And he'd actually died, but they, they, they resuscitated him and they got him back. And, and for, forever after he had to wear this um, sort of like corset because his tummy was so weak from the, from the, from the, from the shooting. And there, and there are photos of all the scars. Some of the famous artists have taken them, you know, and it's just like a, like a hot cross bun all crisscrossed. So he, he, uh, he was very sort of conscious of that, understandably. That's why he he wanted to do other things and did it, did it affect him in a, like a way of he got scared of people or did yes he he was more cautious and uh, and and he felt that he's, he's he didn't have a great deal of time on earth and he was uh, terrified of hospitals he didn't want to go in to have the gallstone operation even though it was just a, a procedural thing he put it off and off and off and, and that, when, is when that we had lunch you... with him he just had some spinach and just played with the spinach. Because his tummy was so um, um, fragile. So intuitively, you think he knew. Hmm? Intuitively, you think he he knew. Oh, no doubt, and that was part of Andy's success. He 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 could see things that nobody else could see. You know, he had great presence of of, of judgment, and that's 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 you know that's the basis for much of his art. All the disaster ones and the and the electric chair, but also the pop culture and how shallow it is, you know, how shallow the pop culture is. Now, when you were in the factory, was uh, uh, I, I'm going to don't say his name wrong, I, I, we, we, we? He wasn't there. He wasn't there. No, I I find it interesting. So many people now claim that they're friends of Andy Warhol's or they knew Andy Warhol's. So when I, Wei Wei popped up in... Melbourne with that joint show with Andy Walls. I was bemused, so I read all the fine print. And uh, Ai Weiwei said that he'd seen Andy Warhol in the street a couple of blocks away. So that was the basis of their whatever. Ah, that was it? Yep. And their, and their fondness both of cats? Well, that's another strong, long bow, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I've got a cat here somewhere. <laughs> It's amazing. I, I, I just have to chuckle now, and Andy would chuckle because, you know, so many people are claiming and writing books about things that are almost fantasy. But that's what happens with famous people. People with the slightest attachment to them or connection to them will claim much, much more. It's so easy to say, oh, I, I was a friend of his or hers, you know, after the fact. Yeah, because they, they're, not, they're not around to deny it. But also people like that rarely deny it because it doesn't get anywhere. It just creates a further argument. Mm. Brooke Astor, was, she was reading the paper one Sunday, the New York Times, and, uh, and uh, uh, Susan Goodfriend, who was a, a, a newly minted socialite in New York, she, she, uh, she was discovered as a hostess on a on a flight by her husband, and and she was very um, very um, ambitious to, uh, to to make a hit, 
and and but I, anyway, in the end, the husband got caught for securities trading, mistrading, you know, and had to resign from Sullivan Brothers, which was a huge scandal because he was a he was a titan of Wall Street. And she's reading the paper, and oh, she said, "Oh, Susan, good friend, claims to be a friend of mine, good friend of mine." And she said. Uh, that's not the case, you know. But that was that, that was it. You see, she was she just said no more. And I thought that's that's a very good way of dealing with it. You just you know, because it doesn't. It's no point to say any more. Yeah, yeah. Negative, you know. What do you call it? Bitchiness. Never really doesn't. It's not a not an attractive trait. And Pamela Harriman, the uh, the American ambassador to France, appointed by Clinton. There was an unauthorised biography came out about her, and they were going to do a book discussion group of it at the New York Public Library. And she got all this worked up, and she rang up Brooke Astor and said, oh, you have to stop it, you have to stop it, you have to stop it. And Brooke said, well, I'll, I'll speak to the director, Vartan Gregorian, and I'll call you back. So she spoke to him, and he looked at the list, and there weren't many acceptances for this discussion group. And he said, my advice is just to leave it. Just say nothing, do nothing. And it was the best advice because very few people turned up and that was it, you see. But had they caused a fuss and the press got involved, it would have, you know, escalated. <laughs> but they're very good lessons to, to know. Just, just, just often the best thing to do is nothing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I know, and I have a circumstance that arised recently... I didn't fire a text message back. I just left it and never heard anything ever again. And I know if I had a shot one back, <laughs> it would have caught a, caused a bit of a brouhaha. Um, now, can I get? Can we go? How was it when Andy asked to do your portrait? Oh, it was it was it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was um, a great thrill. It's almost indescribable, you know, it was, it was after lunch, because because then we were talking about him coming to Australia and what he wanted and what was involved and uh, uh, he, he needed four and a half portrait commissions to pay for it, and the half was a joke, you know, sort of give or take, um, but that, and, uh, and, that and, and they decided to have, to have me sort of on the books as a contributing editor to, for his interview magazine. And then I could write articles and, and sort of do the groundwork and and uh, so that was all that was all good. And and then he said, oh, um, it was all very sudden. And he said, um, oh, by the way, I'd like to do your portrait. It was just like that. It was just after lunch. And and and, uh, and I, sort of, I think I said, oh, that'd be very nice or something. And so he, he just pushed the buzzer and the and and, and all the kids, the young, the beautiful young boys and girls sort of prepared this room. It wasn't very big, and it was all very quickly done. And then he got his Polaroid out, and he... Uh, I was placed against a blank wall, and he told me which way to look, to look at him, and up and down, and left and right. And uh, it only took, like, 20 minutes. It was very short, but very professional, and, and I, I was focused on Andy, and uh, he was saying, oh, you look like Mel Gibson, and, you know, he's really, you know... Um, making me feel terrific about it, and uh, and that was it. And then he said, "Oh well, next time you come back, they'll be ready." 
And I thought nothing more of it. I thought it was going to go nowhere, that they'd go into the trash cans or something. Well, I didn't think that, but you know, I just didn't believe that what was happening. So I somewhat put it out of my mind. I didn't ask any more questions about it. And then six months later, I was there and we had lunch. And he said, I've got something to show you. And, and then I knew that there'd be, be the portrait, I thought, you know, a single portrait, single panel. And so we go to another room, and there were four lined up along the wall. And that was, that was, that was, that was, that was, uh, you know, just amazing. I just felt like fainting. So I, I, I and, he, and then he sort of paused and looked at me and said, said, do you like them? And I said, oh, Andy, they're wonderful. Because they were, you know, I don't know whether you've seen them, but they're, they're big have, and yeah. they're, they're wonderful. And uh, he said, he said, um, how, do, what do you, how do you feel the prospect of being institutionalised? This was his sense of humour, very dry sense of humour. And I thought, well, you know, he's being funny and sort of, you know, and I said, oh, Andy, <laughs> you know. But again, you see, they have been, they have been institutionalised. <laughs> so he was, he was right on it then, you see. And um, so that was wonderful, indescribable. But, but Lottie Smorgan, who was painted, she, she had a similar experience, but she only had double panels, and hers was a commission. And with women, he would paint their faces with white cream, so it, it, it took out all the wrinkles and, and then, you know, made them look like 20-year-olds. But it, it sort of... Her portraits don't look like her, whereas the men without the white cream, they look like the um, subject. So do you know why he was, was he doing that? Was it like... Um... Flattery. Flattery, yeah. He was like um, Cecil Beaton or John Singer Sargent, all the great artists. They flatter their subjects because their subjects have to pay for them, or the husbands do. And, you know, they, people can be very difficult. And they, 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 in their mind, they see themselves the way they like, would like to be, mm. not often how they are. Mm. And so he, he, he made them all glamorous. He glamorised the sitter. But that's been a trick done for a long, long time, and it works. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful moneymaker because the husband's had to, you know, write the cheque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, you were, the magazine was that, the, so you were doing some editing. You were chief editor? No, no, I was just one of them. Yeah. Uh, well, it was really a New York-based magazine, and and they had the pick of anybody they wanted in the US. They weren't really there was nothing that captured them in Australia that would capture the New York and American market. The only one was Paul Hogan, but I interviewed Paul Hogan, and he wasn't very interesting. You know, he just wasn't interesting. He wasn't even trying, you know, he just, he, he, was, he was only there because he sort of had to be by his publicist. But when I looked at it, there was nothing. Was this after Crocodile Dundee? Yeah. Wow. Hoax. <laughs> and he was a bit of a, it was, dr- it was, it was flat. flat. It was flat. Flat lemonade. Mm. But see, you've got, you've got to contribute. You can't just go to a, an interview and say yes and no. And, you know, you've got to, you've almost got to have it worked out before. And, 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 you know, and, 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 and make it interesting. It's up to the subject to make themselves interesting. No, no interviewer can do it for them. <laughs> and so what was up with Hoag's? Do you think he was just... Oh, he's 
bored by it all. Right. He just wasn't up to it. He wasn't interested in it. And he, he wasn't, you know, he, he didn't need to be. He was a success in ma- making a lot of money. He, you know, he, he saw it in a different way. Wow. And um, and so when you were doing that, were you still going backwards and forwards to, to Australia? Hmm. I was commuting. Not, 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 like twice a year. Yeah. Not, which I liked. I quite liked it. And I was beginning to put Andy's visit to Australia together. But even that would have been difficult. Yeah. Because he wasn't so popular then. I mean, I had one conversation with a curator at the National Gallery in Canberra who's no longer with us, but he, he wasn't he wasn't that keen. You know, times are different. But Andy Wilder had predicted himself that he wouldn't be famous until he died. Why does that happen with so many artists? People look at them differently when they're dead, and also the supply has stopped, and they, you know, and they 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 take take a second look. Because it was very similar with Van Van Gogh, right? Yeah, and even Fred Williams on a, in an Australian context. I mean. Dying's one of the best things you can do for an artistic career, as awful as it sounds, and, and he knew that. But even Robert Hughes, Bob Hughes, the, the great Time Life um, art critic, he was very against Andy. But when Andy died, he changed his mind about him, and he admitted that. Because the last thing I, Andy Warhol said to me, he said, you will put in a good word for me with Bob Hughes, won't you? And I said yes, knowing that it wouldn't make any difference because Bob Hughes was so dogmatic about everything he thought. And so I said nothing. But then later he, he told me, he was on television on one of his series saying that he was wrong about Andy Warhol. Very hard, but, but you know, and that really hurt Andy Warhol because artists are very sensitive by nature. They're terribly sensitive. And so they should be because to create art, you've got to have that sensitivity. And so I, I, I'm very wary with critics, you know, that, that they, can be, they can be unduly harsh and it can really uh, hurt. And did he, why did he change his tune? Well, you, you have to, well he's no longer with us, but uh, well, re, reappraisal and I don't know why, but it must have, he must have, I don't know. Because the, you know, like um, Andy Warhol is, his aura now, he's work and the name that follows is like probably I would say the most known artist in the world. Well that's right. But up until the time he died he, that wasn't the case. And, and 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 a lot of them were a lot of artists and critics were jealous of him. They didn't like the, his method of silk screening. They thought that was commercial art, not real art. But you know Andy Andy decide to use that as his own method and so that was unique to him so that was part of his um, brilliance really you know just because it was different doesn't mean to say it's not it's not art but they didn't like that and they didn't like his success and uh, it was jealousy that's what it was jealousy and he was so good at uh, you know marketing himself he 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 used to get up in the morning and get dressed and he'd have these copies of interview that he'd sign and he'd walk a few blocks down the street and of course people would come up to him and give him a signed copy of interview. Well, people love that. And then he'd be out every night, he'd go to Studio 54 and 
Did you ever go there? Yeah, he took me there. I've got a photo of he and I together. It was wonderful. You go to the Mike Todd room downstairs, the VIP room. But it was a bit frightening because all these kids and people, Andy, Andy, they all crowd in, you know, they crowd in. And he sort of cringes because he probably felt a bit threatened physically as well, you know. And, they, and the guards would have to say, go away, go away, go away, you know, pushing them away, pushing them away. <laughs> and all the time you just have to act normally and naturally and, you know, you're just, just part of it. But it was fun. It was a great nightclub. It was wonderful. Did you ever go there? No, not Studio 54, no. No. But they had these theatre sets that come down. So it was very theatrical and, 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 and glitter and people coming on horses. And it, it, was, it was like theatre. It was just like theatre. Just like theatre. And the, and, and the, and the most, most attractive people, men and women, because they'd all been sort of vetted at the door, you know. If, if you weren't good-looking, you, you didn't have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was what amazing. a party! And fabulous music and the drinks and no, no, there's nothing like it now. Nothing like it. Oh, it's just it's such a shame that I mean I don't I'm sure there are lots of things that are underground these days that we don't really know of. But like it seems that we've become pretty sterile. Like I just couldn't imagine how raucous New York would have been in the 80s. Oh, it was going mad. It was going mad. <laughs> You know, because it was just a free-for-all. And then the stock market was booming. and People were people were just so buoyed up by it and jubilant and full of energy. And, and you know, and the architecture of New York, you're going around the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building and just look up and you see all these, all these wonderful buildings and the, the you know, the, the energy and the checker cabs going around and... And the subway, I love the subway, you know, and it's so effective, and they all use it. You know, it's, 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 and then Central Park, the Central Park's beautiful, just to go for a walk, especially in the spring when the magnolias are out in the dogwoods, it's just breathtaking. It's wonderful. Do you like a, a hot or a cold New York? Oh, I hate the heat. You can fry an egg on the pavement. <laughs> yeah. I only struck it once in July and vowed never to go back. But cold, cold's lovely because you can get around if you have a thick coat. And it's beautiful if it's snowing. It's just, you know, it's just beautiful. Yeah. I, I, and, like, you can duck into a bar and then all of a sudden there's some jazz band playing that you've never heard of before and they're just mind-blowing. Yes. And all of a sudden you feel like you're in the presence of something amazing and it's just haphazard but you are yes yeah, that's right that's right but it seemed to happen all the time i don't think it happens like that anymore especially with now the covid oh no yeah i'm sure i think yeah. 9-11 dealt them a very big blow to their confidence and i don't think they've recovered from that because afterwards you know people were very cagey and wary and if you stood too close to them you know about to cross the street, they'd sort of be jumpy and they became very nervous. It was understandably, but it, but it changed the changed the the dynamics. Were you over there then? No, I almost was. I came back. I came back early for some reason. I came back and got back and saw it all on TV here. But they they were all stunned and shocked. I, I, even here, I, you know, we stayed up the whole night. I remember clearly just watching it, just being like, yeah. I think it's still the most impactful moment for a society that I think I've witnessed. 
Yes, well, they were invaded. They were bombed in, in their own, you know, their own major city and Washington. It was a big, big blow to their, their morale, but also the dynamics of it, you know, the aircraft flying, because we all thought, well, we could have been on one of those planes. <laughs> be awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My cousins, um, I mean, I'm sure lots of people have got a story of someone that was in, but my cousin in Philadelphia's wife worked for a French company that had a floor above in the second tower, and her assistant kept saying, we got to go. Because the first tower had been hit, and mm-hmm. she was like, no, no, they're telling us to stay, they're telling us to stay. Anyway, the assistant ended up dragging her out to the stairwell, and she was the only one from the company to live. Mm. I mean... You'd never forget that. No. No. She she went, she left, went home to Philadelphia, and, um, yeah, I think she didn't really leave home for a year. Like, I think it had a profound effect, on, you know, as it would. Yeah, I know you you need counselling. Yeah, yeah. Post-traumatic shock. Yeah. Now, um, of all the works, do you have a favourite piece? Oh, apart from your own. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's my favourite. That's now in the Art Gallery of South Australia. And, and they're working on an exhibition in uh, March 2023 called Andy Warhol and Photography. So they're putting it all together, and they've been, they've been, we've been zooming, and and they, uh, they got all my photographs. I emailed all my photos across. They're very pleased about that. So that, that, that's a nice thing. It's, it's a nice interest to have, a sort of ongoing interest that I sort of go, I go, I, I go with the fashion. It sort of goes up and down. You know, there are times when nothing happens, which doesn't worry me at all. And then all of a sudden, they want to do a show, and so they want to be like mad. And want everything, which is fine. It's fine. <laughs> so that'll be in South Australia as well. Yeah, that'll be the Art Gallery of South Australia. Um, and now, I just in my mind, when you're talking before, and you're saying he wasn't very well liked, and uh, is he? Do you think Banksy is a similar sort of guy of this time? No, he's 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 he's, he's not anywhere near the league of Andy Warhol. And he sort of just cottoned on for a bit of a free ride. So, uh, and of course he died young. That <laughs> that also helps. And um, so now, how how are you still? Are you working at the moment? Are you? How's... No, I'm, I'm retired. I used to be ambassador for Sotheby's Australia, and um, I've now retired from that. So I'm enjoying my retirement, but I have all these sort of things keeping me interested. They're like it's like a hobby. It's like a hobby. <laughs> Great hobby, um, but it feels like you, you, you sort of you're off to Melbourne tomorrow. And I feel is that like instead of going here to New York, do you now from here to you know little well, jobs? Well, that's fine because I can't go to New York at the moment. No, and and uh, and I like Australia. I've always liked Australia, and so um, I can easily go to Melbourne tomorrow for the day for lunch with, uh, with uh, an, an emeritus professor of music that I just met a few weeks ago because I like meeting new people. Yeah. And, and, and they, they ask me to things and I, I, I usually accept. So I, I just go down for the day and do that. And then and I, sometimes I go to Albury. But I find Albury's a wonderful, wonderful trip because there's a bus that goes from here and it goes through Tokemore and Yawonga and Malwale. It goes along the Murray 
and it's the most beautiful, beautiful trip. It's like a like a Arthur Boyd painting with the water and the birds, and it's it's, it's just magnificent, you know. And, and you think, what a beautiful country Australia is. And then coming back, which is later in the afternoon, you see the clear light, and you see the fields, and 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 it's pure Arthur Streeton. That, that light and the mellowness of the landscape and the crisp green. And you think, wow, you know, it's, it's a beautiful country. Arthur Street used to come to Denny, used to stay with the fields out at Woolbrickham, he and um, Hans Heysen. But also um, Denny's had, had some great uh, uh, admirers. I mean, Prince Philip came here in 1940 when he was 19 years old, when he was in, in the Navy, he was Philip of Greece. And then he came back regularly, and the last time was in November 1956 after opening the Olympic Games. And he loves Denny because he, lo- he, he loves the, the, the plain, you know, the flatness of it. And you can see right to the horizon and, and this wonderful sky and the clear light. If you look at the light, it's very clear, and that's unique to Australia. And, and, but you have to look at it. Andy Warhol taught me to look at things because we all go around we don't look at things. We go shopping in the supermarket and we whiz down the aisles, but we don't look because all those packets, it's art, it's art. You know, all the, all the Campbell's soup tins and all the things, it's, you know. And he, he sort of made, 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 made you stop and think about it. And then the, often the, the, the paint on the canvas would be very, very thin and he'd say it's as thin as a consumer society, which again, you see, it is. But he, 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 t- he taught us how to look at things. And, and artists often do, you know, they, they, they make you... And that's one of the beauties about art. You know, you, you think about it, things you take for granted. A hundred percent. And I think that's... Uh, I mean, not that it's... I, I know I'm blaming everything on phones at the moment, but I really think that, you know, that they are helping distract us from the obvious in front of us, the beauty to life. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And the internet, it, we, they've come to dominate our lives. We should be using them, but they've taken control of our lives uh, and to the detriment uh, of the way we live. And that's something that I, I would hope that some that people would wake up to because, and it gets them into terrible trouble. You know, because as I said, the best thing to do about many situations is to do nothing. And you, you watch the television, there's all these people squealing and squawking and this and that, you know, all this. What, what, if they just did nothing about, you know, being some of the stuff, it would just go away. Not all of it, but some of it. You know, we blow everything up. It's so funny. Like a, a friend of mine, he got pulled up for sending a work email recently and he sent it to a group of people, men and women, Hey guys, and that was pulled up, mm. and it was funny because he were the, 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 then they had to have a meeting about what's politically correct way to um, engage a group of people now, and uh, his dad said, "Well, why can't they just teach people to be a little bit more tolerant?" Well, that's that that, that, that that's that's what should be. We're too sensitive. We've become hypersensitive to anything. And also when you say things, you've got to be terribly careful because it can be misconstrued. Yeah. The Queen, the Queen is very careful when she says anything and she'll say something like, I mean that in a nice way because it, she realises it can be taken in, a, in, a, in another way, you see. <laughs> but, but we all know, you know, when you say things and people take it the wrong way, it's a... 
Nuance. Yeah. You know? uh, yes. Yeah, it's 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 becoming. Uh, it's funny. I was talking about to about this very thing with Rob on the way up here today. You know, and just how scrutinised and um, micromanaged, and I feel like it's it's a real uh, conversation at the moment. Mm. And it's not as you say in in a negative. It's not in a positive way. Everyone's feeling like it's eating at the you know fibers of the structure of society we're sort of losing this friendly banter because of political correctness you can't have a sense of humor anymore there's there's no there's no you can't tell a joke you've got to be so you you can't you know what what can you say well i mean you've got to just you've got to be sure of your company when you throw something out you know and and uh, yeah i know it's a trick it's a trick. Well, it, it, hopefully it will, it will pass and things will change, but I can't see, see it at, at the moment. No, no, yeah, uh, I know. So when you go down to Melbourne, do you drive down? No, well, I, I sometimes, but I, I drive to a tube and catch the train or the, the, the bus from there to Bendigo. They have a regular bus going backwards and forwards because then I can relax. Much nicer. The roads and then are it goes crazy. Right into Spencer Street, yeah, Southern Cross, yeah, and then I can just walk up and uh, and, and then I catch the train back at three o'clock, home for the news at seven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds very relaxing. But you've got to work it out. You've got to work out how to enjoy your life. You know, it's not going to arrive in your lap or with a big ribbon around it. You've got to you've got to you've got to work at it. You've got to work out and say to yourself what you like and. And what can I do? What can I afford? And you know, and you don't need a lot of money to enjoy yourself. Quite often, uh, you know, the contrary is the case. You can have a much better time with less. And, uh, and so you work out what what, and then then you go ahead and do it without feeling the pressures of what society deem you should be doing. Oh, well, that's, that, that doesn't matter. That, that, you know, that's irrelevant. You just ignore that. And all these people who want to keep up with the Joneses, well, they, they can, they can keep, keep trying because they'll never get there. There's always going to be somebody richer than you. You know, you'll never get there. Even the Queen Mother's famously saying, you can't, you, she said, I can't sell Windsor Castle for, to buy a hat. You know, even she, she was limited. She had everything. But she, but, but, and, and, uh, and there was truth in what... Um, what you say. You don't need all that stuff. No, it's funny. I was having this very conversation, I think, three days ago with a friend of mine. At, uh, uh, I was just amazed at how little money I needed to live a contented life. Mm. Um, oh, and you're much happier. Yeah, yeah, as you said. You, and it's different for everyone, what makes you happy. And, yeah. and, and luckily for me, I, you know, I've got a few things and it's you know, ocean and nature connected that doesn't cost a lot of money right. and, and keep... And they're know, priceless. That's right. They're priceless. But you, you, can, you can sort of teach yourself how to enjoy life by sort of working out what you like and then, then, then finding ways to maximise your exposure to those things whether it be going to museums or going to football or tennis or golf or just a cup of coffee even, or walk in the gardens, you know, all of which are very, they're free or very reasonable. And, and, and that can make you a very happy person. The thing today is you don't, we don't need to travel. That's one of the great things about today. 
and the pandemic sort of, that's one of the benefits of pandemic. There are always wonderful exhibitions coming to Australia from London and and from Boston. And Well, see, a few years ago, those, those shows really couldn't come because the packaging wasn't up to it and, and there was a vibration in, in, the, in the aircraft which, um, which would affect the works. And uh, uh, I, I, I knew William S. Lieberman, the, uh, the curator of uh, contemporary art at the Metropolitan Museum, you know, one of the really old-school curators, and I was at a meeting with Betty Church because I was a trustee of the American Friends of the National Gallery. And Betty was saying that they were going to lend blue poles for an important exhibition at MoMA because it's one of, one of the important works. And um, he said, Betty, I'd really caution you against doing that. He said, because it's painted with house paint. And, uh, and the vibrations, he said, in the aircraft just could do untold damage. Anyway, she ignored that and because, because the, the, the quid pro quo for lending it was so substantial, they could get a show from, from um, the Museum of Modern Art if, if, if it was lent, just that they, they bargain, they bargain. And then a couple of years later, there's a show coming out or they were sending the work off again and I said to Rupert Meyer, who was the chairman of the National Gallery, I, I said, I, I related that conversation, you know, that Bill Lieberman had warned Betty Church about it. And he said, oh, that was then. He said, now they've improved it so much. He said, that there's really no, there's very little risk, he said. But so you see, we've got that wonderful show coming from the National Gallery in London, Botticelli to Van Gogh. And we've got a wonderful exhibition coming from MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston to the National Gallery. They're sensational exhibitions. And we'll be able to see them in a better way than, than residents of those countries. Because now with timed entry, it's not crowded. You see, once you'd be jam-packed and you could hardly see them and you'd be jostled and it was very uncomfortable and all the selfies and things, but now because of the restrictions and, and the effectiveness of, of these timed entry, entry, it's wonderful. I went to the, um, the triennial at the NGV a few weeks ago and, and, and I, I wasn't keen to go for, for the reason of being crowded, but... You've always got to be open-minded and say, oh, you know, you, you don't say, oh, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, because you'll never go anywhere. So I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be open to it. <laughs> and, uh, and a young colleague from Sotheby's was the one, and he said, oh, I'll organise the time and get it all organised. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. And so we went, and it was wonderful because it wasn't crowded. But also it was the most sensational exhibition of international contemporary art, wonderfully curated and it was it just blew me away it just blew me away and you see the gallery was open at night open until nine o'clock well that was never the case I was on the NGV foundation in the 80s and I was the youngest one there by 100 years and they they, they nicknamed me the kid is the kid coming today you know because they were all in their 70s or more you know and uh, but it was all about keeping keeping the masses out that art, art was a um, a connoisseur's pleasure, and and only you know only small number of people should be let in. So it was, it was all about keeping the masses out, the public out. But now that's been reversed, which is it's and it's how it should be. Uh, and they've taken to it like ducks to water. They're, they're they're lining up and you know they're loving it. But also they've realised that that their opinion of the art is just as good as the next person's. You know, there's no, there's no special mystery about curators and directors saying this is good. And Certainly they know more because they've seen more. But what, what, what 
they're, they're, everybody's opinion should be um, respected. Uh, and it is, you don't, you, don't, you don't get sort of people being disparaged now, you know, they've got no taste or anything. They're, they're, people have respected that, that people, people can admire it. Well, from my not, my understanding, you could admire a piece of art for many different facets, from the very really technical that you can see that the artist has used, through to the emotional, and just what is this picture? No matter what it's been, how it's been brought to life, how is it affecting you emotionally? That's right. And that's a really wide, you know, box of judgingness. <laughs> to put it weirdly, but uh, and for me, I go on the emotional aspect because I'm not, I don't know a lot about. But that's the way to do it. It's, what does it do to you? Does it speak to you? And everybody can have a different feeling about it. Totally. And have you? Um, there's a book that Julia Cameron wrote called The Artist's Way. I haven't seen it. It's a great book. It's a, it's a work ten week workbook to uh, evoke creativity if you're feeling blocked up. And she, just going back to what you said before, it made me think about it. She, she, um, each week would send you on a new journey sort of thing. And you'd have to take yourself on these things called an artist date mm. where you wouldn't tell anyone where you're going <laughs> and you had to go and do something that you normally wouldn't do and, and have an experience by yourself. And it had to sort of last an hour. And, you know, that might mm. be from going buy some paints to have a go at that, to go mm. and see, uh, a gallery exhibition, and but you're alone to experience this and then not tell anyone about it. And that was such a foreign concept because... It's, it's a great idea. It's so good. And a great way of learning and developing your appreciation. It's just like a farmer looking at sheep or cattle. The more you look at them, the better your eye becomes. You train your eye. And the more you do that, the more you enjoy it. And it just sort of leads you in, just, you know, like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's been a, uh, just even for my own growth to be able to go somewhere and not tell anyone mm. um, and have an experience, uh, yeah, somehow it, it, it does enrich the soul. But that's what art's about. That's what's it's uh, created. And, and, and artists won't speak about their work. You, you never ask an artist to explain what it is. That's offensive because... The way you feel about it and the way you relate it, that, that's, how it that, that's how it is, you know. Andy Warhol would never talk about his art, he, you know. And other artists, they, they won't, they don't like it. Because everybody can have their own um, feelings about it. So with art, um, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not sure, but fine art... Is fine art when the artist isn't influenced by anyone else whatsoever and they're just somehow creating something that's never been done before? No. Um, <laughs> fine art's a sort of traditional art in the, in the, in the, sort of the old style. And, uh, but but um, the, the great sort of... The great thing that... The thing that really distinguishes a really good artist is that they're, they're doing something unique and creative in their own way. You know, they're, they're not repeating something else in the style of the fine art. You know, fine art's sort of general, you know, um, whereas, whereas uh, being a really clever artist is, is being creative and developing your own style. And, and that's very rare because it's hard to do. So much has been done before. 
so much has been done before. It must be really difficult for young artists to find their own voice, I would imagine, in a loud world at the moment. Well, that's the challenge. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's very hard. And then when, when they do, it may not be liked. <laughs> it might be criticised and, and, um, and knocked about. Yeah, and only then recognised once they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's joking. an awful thing, isn't it? It's, oh, it's awful, terrible. Awful it's, for some, you know, like for many people on, on any artistic stream, it's, it, it's a, many people's a heartbreaking road. You know, you really only hear about the top. Well, that's why they're to be admired and encouraged and, and nurtured and, and respected and regarded as, uh, you know, they should be wrapped in cotton wool because they are different and very important. They're recording our culture at this time as we go on. It's a stamp, time stamp. Yes, a creative one, yes. Yeah. <sighs> Henry, I want to say thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Really, really appreciate it. Will you shake hands? Pleasure, of course. Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Henry Gillespie. I told you, what a yarn. Henry, if you're out there and listening, thank you so much. I really appreciate it um, and I really, really enjoyed meeting you and um, and, and thanks for being so open and honest. I, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled. And to whoever else out there in the wide world is listening, thank you so much for lending me your ears. I hope you enjoyed that journey. Um, and stay tuned for more, uh, you know, high-speed tales of nine kilometres supposedly, allegedly, over the limit. I, <laughs> my car struggles to do it in my own case, over the limit. Um and who would be stupid enough to speed past a police officer, like in their right mind? Not me. Um, anyway, I um, won't rabbit on anymore. I'll let you get on with your day and your life. Um, or if you're like me, you'll just keep listening because I will do anything to avoid anything that's real. You know, I will just, um, I love to drink coffee, sit around, talk shit. Anyway, um, I suppose you'll have to find something else to listen to if you um, if you like procrastinating like myself. All right, until next time, a Riverdutchie.